Hi, I'm Joe Posnanski. Uh, before we get started with the podcast this week, uh, it's time for our shout out to the Dollar Shave Club, our sponsor. Uh, for those of you who are regular listeners of the podcast, you know, uh, I don't like to shave. Uh, my partner, Michael Shore, likes shaving way less than I do. So that would make us just about the worst people on earth to be telling you about the Dollar Shave Club. And yet, on the other hand, it's sort of a perfect fit for us. I think the thing that uh, makes the Dollar Shave Club so cool is you don't have to think about it. It comes every month. You get a box with your razors, your razor sticks, whatever they call those things, uh, lotions if you want. I mean, you can go as deep as you want. You can get as much shaving stuff. They've got a million shaving things there. Uh, you can go as deep or as simple as you want. I like it very simple. Just get my box, uh, use a different razor uh, blade every week. Very cool, very easy to do. Uh, I like it. And if you go to dollarshaveclub.com slash podcast, P-O-S-C-A-S-T, you get the first month free, which, uh, you know, it's free. Michael Shores likes to say, and I tend to agree with him, you never, ever turn down free stuff, ever. There's no reason to ever turn down. I go, I go to every single uh, free sample I can ever go to. Uh, dollarshaveclub.com slash podcast. Uh, and now let's go on with the show. I have a very special guest with us today. We have uh, Chris Costello, who is the youngest daughter of Lou Costello, the, the, the great Lou Costello of... Uh, Abbott and Costello fame, one of the one of the great comedians uh, in American history, and and someone who uh, very much touched the sports world that uh, that I know so many of you uh, care about. Um, Chris has a, a book out. It's actually just been re released uh, for the for the ebook world for Kindle and that sort of thing called "Lose on First. It's a it's really a touching and and warm. Uh, telling of the life of of Lou Costello, and and it's I think it's a little more than that. It's it's a it's really retelling the the story of of Hollywood and 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 entertainment in that in that period of time. So, Chris, thank you very much for taking the time here. Oh, thank you, Joe. It's really a pleasure being with you. Let's let's start with the book. I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you some some baseball questions. I know you know that's coming. Um, <laughs> but but let's start with the book for a minute. You actually wrote this book in 1981. Is that right? Uh, that's correct. Yeah. That's correct. But, well, actually, there was four years of research before the book ever came out, <clears throat> because um, I was just 11 when my dad passed away. Sure. And so it was giving me a chance to also get to know him as an adult, both my parents. Uh, so I took four years and had a ball. I interviewed everybody and anybody I could get my hands on. And looking back, I'm so thankful I did you know, the book when I did, because I was able to still, you know, get with the producers, the directors, the people behind the scenes, uh, family, friends, um, you know, which really, I always credit, they were the ones that wrote this book, not me, not me. Well, it's, when you go to the acknowledgments, it starts with the acknowledgments page, and you go there, and <laughs> it's just a, it's a who's who. I mean, it's just so, you know, down the line, and, and there are people that, that, uh, are unfamiliar, uh, who were big, big Hollywood people. Uh, but then mm -hmm. there's Bob Hope and Lucille Ball and all of the all of the real legends of, of comedy and of, of television and the movies. I mean, it's mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. must have really been. And, and you know, that was really going to be my first question. You were only 11 uh, when your father uh -huh. died uh, and he was sick for much of that time. So did you feel like when you were writing this book, uh, you were sort of getting to know him in a way for the first time? 
Oh, absolutely. But he was not sick during my childhood years. I mean, believe me, he, um, you know, he had rheumatic fever, uh, which today he would have had the heart valve, you know, replacement. Sure. Uh, but back then there was very little information on this. Uh, you know, he was, you know, he would have his bouts here and there, but for the most part, as a child, I just remember him being a real energetic dad. You know, he was, he was a big kid himself, and I think he looked at everybody just wanting to have everybody join in on this birthday party, you know. Um, uh, he, uh, uh, he gave so much, you know, to his family, uh, you know, extended family, uh, anybody in need. You know, he was right there. So I always looked at him as a person who had long arms, short pockets. <laughs> if a child was in need, absolutely no question, he was there. You know, he was, when people say, how do you like to remember your dad? Well, certainly as a father, because he was a great dad. He was a very attentive dad. When he came home, he walked through the door as dad, not Lou Costello, you know, walking into walls and stuff like that. Um, But I also want people to remember him for the humanitarian deeds he did. I mean, this man and but, you know, were powerhouses when it came to helping others. Um, you know, one of the stories that's in my book, which I love, and I remember interviewing, I think it was the wife of Joe Elias, who at Universal ran the concession stand. And uh, when dad found out, and Bud too, that Joe needed an operation, but could not afford the operation because he couldn't afford to shut down the stand, you know, for that length of time, dad and Bud moved in, they got him with the best doctors in Los Angeles. They assured him not to worry. Your, your stand is going to stay open while you're recouping. They paid for the operation. But every morning when they would walk on the lot, the first place they would go to was Joe Elias's concession stand. They would buy out everything, the newspapers, the candies. Uh, and this went on for months. And I, re- I think Joe's wife's name was Josie, I think. At any rate, she remembered the story. And she said, this is what I remember when I think of, of Lou Costello and Bud Abbott is how they helped my husband when he needed it the most. And, you know, but that's who dad was, you know, he, uh, money for him was of course to, to make sure that his family was comfortable provided for, but it was also to help others. Yeah. The, so that's kind of how, yeah. No, no. I mean, that's that warmth. Uh, that 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 he exhibited throughout his life. I mean, it really it comes through. I mean, there's no there's never a question about where where his heart is, and especially because um, you know there there was there was quite a bit of tragedy in 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 your father's life, and, and you you certainly go into into that as well. And and uh, and you know, and and he was a man who obviously felt very deeply. I mean, there were, there were, he was just a, he was an emotionally, just a very powerfully emotional person, wasn't he? You know, he was, he, he showed it differently. Um, you know, he, as I said, you know, he, he, the man on camera was totally different than the man off camera. Um, which, which, you know, most comedians are, um, but he could not stand to see anybody being treated unfairly. He was always for the underdog. He, um, children especially, you know, he wanted children to have um, the chance that his children had, which is why when my brother um, passed away, he drowned. 
uh, right before his first birthday, before I was born, you know, he could have gone one of two ways. You know, he chose to take a higher road and to memorialize his son. He did what was in his heart, was, which was he wanted to help the underprivileged kids of East L.A., you know, a place where they could go to get off the streets. Um, he built an Olympic-sized swimming pool. No child was turned away. They were given free uh, swimming lessons, and that was his way, you know, of giving back and to dealing with his own personal tragedy. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, that is honestly, it's one of the most touching, certainly heartfelt, and 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 you know, very difficult part of the book is is when is when your brother uh, died, you know, drowned just just a couple of days before his his uh, first birthday, and and uh, and. Lou Costello uh, and Abbott and Costello performed uh, that night, mm-hmm. and, and then mm-hmm. and then you you recount what what Abbott said in the in the in the moments afterward. And I mean, I was mm-hmm. I was in tears. Mm-hmm. It was so it was so beautiful. Oh well, you know it's 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 funny. I, I you know um, not it, I think that that whole period he had like a year. Um, well, let me back up for just a second. Sure. When my two older sisters were children you know, babies. He was on the road. He was working burlesque. So he really kind of missed some of those milestone uh, events, you know, taking the first steps, you know, the first words, because he was he was working. When Lou Jr. came along, he had had the bout with rheumatic fever, which put him in bed for a year. And so he and the baby were learning how to crawl together. Mm. I mean, he had all of this time with the baby. And when he went back to the first, I think it was the he was going back to the Abbott and Costello radio show, right? And he had asked my mother specifically to keep the baby up to see if he would be able to recognize his voice on the air. And when the baby, you know, unfortunately drowned, and Dad was in rehearsal, Mom had gone out to get him his his stroller for his birthday. Um, and it was one of those situations. This one thought that one was watching the baby. That one, blah, blah, blah. Sure. and Butch got his name because he was he was a strapping little kid and he broke a slat in the playpen and managed to you know squeeze out of this playpen but um everybody was calling in saying you know they would take over for him that night and he was in his office and i think harry abbott and bud bud's brother was there my aunt came over and they all said lou you you know he said i'm going back to the studio to do this show and they all looked at him and they said, how, how, you, you can't. And he said, I am. He said, because I, I asked Ann to keep the baby up to see if he would be able to recognize my voice on the air. And wherever God has taken my son, I want him to know he can still hear me. I still get choked up, you know, and I wasn't even there. Um, but that's the type of man he was. He was so devoted to his fans. Um, he was devoted to his family. Uh, he was devoted to everyone that worked with him on the films, you know, both he and Bud. Um, and I can remember the Andrews sisters. Um, I, when I interviewed Maxine Andrews and she became a dear friend, she told this one story. She said, you know, when I think of, of Lou and I think of Bud, but, uh, but in this case, specifically Lou, sure. we were filming, I think it was Buck Privates, and that was their first starring film. And it was very hot. They were on a back lot at Universal, and and the studio had brought in these very hot army tents, which would be where the Andrews sisters were going to do their changes and stuff. 
And dad and bud said, no way. It's a hundred degrees in that tent. And we're not going to start filming until you people bring in adequate trailers for them. Now that really impressed her because she said, nobody ever went to bat for us. Nobody ever really went to bat for, you know, um, sort of the underdogs of the film, um, the, you know, the, the non-stars, the co-stars. And she said that really impressed her, you know, because they, they would not film until the Anders sisters had, you know, decent trailers. Yeah. So that's, you know, and you don't find that too much today. No, no. You really don't. Yeah. Uh, no, it's, uh-uh. It really is. It really is special, and, and it should be said. I mean, you know, it, uh, I would imagine that that everybody listening. But it, this was at a time when when Abbott and Costello were the were the biggest thing. They were the biggest comedy team in 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 the world, uh, and and you know the the biggest thing in Hollywood. I want to read really quickly. Um, you, you quoting uh, Bud Abbott on the night uh, that uh, that uh, Luke Costello's uh, son died, uh, and he said on radio. He went on, the show went on as if nothing had happened, and, and they, they went on, and then he went to the microphone, and he said, in the face of the greatest tragedy which can come to any man, Lou Costello went on tonight so that you, the radio audience, would not be disappointed. There is nothing more that I can say except that I know you all join me in expressing our deepest sympathy to a great trooper. Good night. And that's how he closed the show. And, and you know, it just it just speaks to you know I mean, that's the ultimate example of the show must go on but but that was sort of represents the heart that your father really displayed and i think no question a big part of why uh he was so successful and they were so successful is that even though he was certainly playing a character uh he played it with such exuberance and such heart that that everybody mm-hmm. just everybody felt it well, you know, another thing, too, is if you ever watched the Abbott and Costello films after 1943, um, sometimes you'll you'll see a bracelet mm-hmm. on his, and I'm trying to remember what, it was either his right or, I, don't, I can't remember which wrist it's on. I think it's his right. Um, there's a bracelet. And the bracelet was to be a gift to Dad from my mother from the baby on his first Christmas. Of course, Lou Jr. passed away in November so it would have been a Christmas gift that December for dad. My mom gave him the bracelet, which was engraved to dad from Butch. And he never took it off. He had it uh, soldered, you know, together. So this bracelet never came off. So you will see this bracelet, even in a lot of still shots, you know, you'll, you'll see a bracelet. And there were times with certain films that the bracelet had to be camouflaged uh, or taped. Um, maybe like, for instance, uh, time of their lives where he plays a revolutionary, you know, ghost. Um, they would have to camouflage it, but he never took that bracelet off. It's really amazing. Just amazing. Well, yeah. obviously, you know, I, I, we focus a lot here on sports uh, and sports played such a big role. Uh, you, you actually started your book talking about how your, when your father, uh, he seldom got more than a base hit when he played Sandlot baseball. That's how you start the book off. Uh, <laughs> but, but he was, he he sports were was a big part of his childhood growing up he was a he was a boxer for a little while tell us a little bit about sort of the sports uh angle for him sort of growing up and he was a big sports fan yeah he was yeah you know i i think more his sports were more baseball maybe basketball i don't really recall him ever talking about football sure 
Although I think he got real excited when my sister Carol went to Oklahoma U because he was all <laughs> enthralled with the football team. <laughs> you know, hell for the education. No, no, it's not a great football team. Um, but um, he he grew up. You know, he grew up loving sports. Um, he was the oh gosh, free throw champion with the Armory Five of a basketball team in his teen years, uh, three years in a row. Um, they said some of the people I interviewed when I was doing my book, I think it was Midgey Shields or one of these guys that played on the team with them. They they would laugh and they'd say he played like a a, a Boston Globetrotter. I mean, he was so funny on his feet, and he would pirouette and go between the legs of the opponents and this and that, and then he would he would bounce the ball and shoot the basket and it would go right in. Um, you know, he he loved the sport, absolutely loved the sport, and he was very good at it. Um, when he tried his hand at boxing under the name of Lou King, uh, very short-lived, a lot of shiners. You know, I think it was his line to grandma, she would say, is he would come into the, the, uh, to breakfast in the morning, sit down, and she'd notice he'd have another shiner. And what are you doing, Lou? He'd say, Mom, you really got to lower these doorknobs. And uh, I think it was his dad who said that um, his uncle – my dad's uncle came over and he was the ch- at the fire chief in Patterson and said, Hey, you want to go to this boxing match over the weekend? He said, I hear this new kid is going to be in the ring. His name is Lou King. And my grandfather had no idea who Lou King was. And he said, sure, let's go. So they went and they were sit- sitting ringside. And all of a sudden my grandfather was horrified. Went into the ring comes my father with as Lou King. And so my grandfather stayed for the match the next morning. And my father, I guess, got knocked out or something. The next morning, dad approached, you know, the breakfast table again, only had two shiners. And my grandfather was reading a paper. He lowered the paper, looked over his glasses and said, good morning, Lou King. How are you? And that ended the boxing career immediately because, yeah. I mean, that, that just, you know, uh-uh. But, you know, but the basketball he loved, you know, he and he brought that into his films, too. You know, here come the coeds. Yeah. You know, um, he shot all the baskets, you know, from off camera. Uh, in fact, there was a funny story, um, which is in Abbott and Costello uh, in Hollywood by Ron Palumbo and Bob Fermanac, the ultimate Bible for any Abbott and Costello fan on their film careers. But they brought onto the set a professional basketball coach who was going to supposedly teach dad how to bounce the ball, shoot the ball. And dad was playing along with the guy because the guy seemed to be very condescending to dad. Mm -hmm. I mean, here's this short little fat guy and you know, he's got to show him how to shoot a basket and do the ball stuff. Oh, so dad just took the ball and he bounced it a couple of times. And he said, well, I bounced the ball like this. Right. And the guy says, yeah, that's right. That's right. And he says, and then I can do a turn and I put the ball like here on my hand and I kind of like over my shoulder, right? Am I doing it right? He says, yes, you're doing it right. But dad said, oh, okay, can I do this too? And he bounced the ball really fast a couple of times and over his head, he shot a perfect basket. <laughs> and the guy was so upset that he turned around, walked off the set and would not come back. So, you know, the director had said, you know, I mean, who would think that the short little fat guy would be such a great basketball player, but he really, really was. He knew how to shoot the basket. That's so, funny. It's um, funny because he was he was such a 
you know, certainly in the movies, everybody who has seen, you know, Abbott and Costello movies, he, he was a very, he was a very physical comedian. I mean, he, he did a lot of yeah. physical things, yeah. you know, and so, you know, that I think, don't, don't you think that the, you know, he, he obviously was a short little fat guy that was part of his, his, his act. Oh, absolutely. But, but he was, he was physically gifted in ways that people probably didn't quite pick up on. Well, you know, here's the thing too, you know, you, you've heard of like basketball players, football players that have taken ballet dancing, sure. you know, to, for, for the, the movement of the feet and stuff. I think dad really, because of his love and playing the sport so much in Patterson really got to, to make the, I mean, he was a natural, you know, when it came to using his feet in the turns with basketball and even with prize fighting. Uh, there are some scenes where, you know, he's in the ring. Sure. And a lot of that is just, uh, he, he just knew the moves. Um, he really appreciated sports. Um, I mean, his dearest friend in the whole world was Joe DiMaggio. He adored Joe DiMaggio. Um, and Joe adored him. And there are some really funny stories, which are also in the book. Um, one of the stories I loved was when I spoke to Dorothy Arnold, who was Joe DiMaggio's first wife. Mm-hmm. And she had explained to me, she said, you've got to understand, Joe and I were newly married. Your parents were newly married. Joe and dad thought it would be fun to take us, the ladies, to their first boxing match in New York. She said, we arrived, we're sitting ringside, and all of a sudden, Joe and dad are scurrying around looking for newspapers. And they're grabbing newspapers and throwing them on our laps. (laughs) And your mother looked up and said, what is this for? He said, in case the blood splatters. And with that, she said, your mother and I stood up and we <laughs> left. <You know? laughs> but um, he and Joe really had such a great relationship. And, and Joe really did adore dad. Hence, who's on first yes. is, uh, and I would, I, who's on first was, and this comes from, oh my Lord, uh, I think Bud Abbott in an interview. Also, my Uncle Pat, who was dad's older brother. Um, who's on first, the origin was really as a tribute to Joe DiMaggio, hmm. their good friend. They wanted to pay tribute to him as a baseball player and as their friend by doing a skit that would have a baseball theme. And there was, um, in the British music halls in vaudeville, there was a standard stock burlesque routine called Who's the Boss? And what they did is they basically took this format of who's the boss and incorporated who's on first for baseball. So I know through the years people have said, well, no, Abbott and Costello did not, you know, write who's on first. That comes from who's the boss. Well, the, the, the pattern, the format, uh, the, the initial blueprint was who's the boss. But what they did is they incorporated all the baseball stuff to it. Uh, which then, you know, I mean, that became theirs. There was not another burlesque comic, you know, on the circuit that would touch it after they started performing it. Uh, but there's some very funny stories. Lou Reach, you know, my dad's first cousin, he was, he said, I was just, you know, um, a teenager. But I used to drive your dad to New York um, when he was working burlesque. And he said, I remember loving to go into the city, going into the burlesque, you know, houses, because I got to see the burly cues. And he said, you know, I'm 18 or 19. I'll, I don't want to see the stage acts. I want to see the burly cue girls. And he said, on one run over into New York City, Dad had turned to him one night and said, hey, Lou, if you're not busy over the weekend, come by Mom and Pop's house, because Bud and I are going to be rehearsing 
this routine that we're, we're doing. We're writing a routine called Who's On First. It's about baseball. So Lou got thrilled thinking, oh, my God, you know, they've asked me to sit down and give my opinion on a routine. So he said, I'll be there. And he came. And down in the basement, Bud and Dad started going through their draft, you know, of doing this routine which was still in the infancy stage. I mean, they hadn't incorporated any of the nuances, you know, to the routine as of yet. And after they did it, dad turned to Lou and he looked at him and he said, okay, what'd you think? And Lou sat there. He says, of course, now I'm a big guy. He says, so I cross my legs. I fold my arms. I look right up at your dad. I'd say, not going to fly. Don't do it. Not going to fly. And he said years later, oh, dear God, thank God they didn't listen to me. Um, you know, but it went on really. I mean, who's on first is what catapulted them into Hollywood from the Kate Smith Hour when they were on radio. You know, so took, I always liked that. I was going to say it took mm-hmm. a little while to get it on the Kate Smith Hour, right? I mean, they, they, the reaction oh, yeah. the reaction from the producer there at the Kate Smith Hour it's was called, similar to, uh-huh. your, to the Cousins' reaction, right? I mean, they exactly. didn't think exactly. it was going to work. Well, they thought it was way too visual for a listening audience. And uh, Ted Collins had had been very resistant, very resistant. So Dad decided to pull a switcher on Ted Collins. And Bud went along with him on it, but Dad said, look, you know, we can't go on tonight. What do you mean you can't go on tonight? Well, we just don't have enough routines. We've exhausted all the routines. And Ted Collins got really, really worried. And he said, oh, my God. He said... Well, you got to do something, do anything, do that, that baseball thing you've got. And they went on that night and I spoke to somebody who worked at NBC during that time period. And they said that the switchboards were lighting up like Christmas trees um, after they did that routine. And that's when Universal sent a telegram asking them to come to Hollywood because they wanted to test in, in a film. That was an Ellen Jones film, Nancy Kelly film called, I think it was... The original title was Caribbean Holiday, and it switched to One Night in the Tropics. And the funny story is that was just a test film. It was really Alan Jones' film. And Alan Jones said to me, when I interviewed him, he said, one time I didn't exercise my editing rights. Why? I don't know. He said, but he said all of a sudden they're incorporating more and more and more Abbott and Costello. (laughs) And he said, years ago, I'm in South America. I'm walking down the street. I look at a a theater marquee and I'm looking at Abbott and Costello in One Night in the Tropics. And he said, I stopped and I said, well, where the hell am I? You know, so they completely own that film, you know, after they did it. So it really um, is incredible. Yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful. It's really incredible how quickly who's on first considering, you know, it is, and and sure, I mean every great comedy routine. And by the way, I think most people know this. I mean, it's it's the, it's, the record is in the Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was voted the number one, the the funniest uh, skit of the century by Time Magazine. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld mm-hmm. has called it the greatest skit ever written. So on and so on and so on. Mm-hmm. But yet, immediately, it launched them. I mean, it was that it was that good oh, a skit. It, it immediately launched them. It did. It did. I mean, that that was it. Um, you know, I mean, Dad's first in out in Hollywood back in the 20s, um, you know, where he was trying to become a dramatic actor. And thank God, you know, it, it, it you know, he went back east. Um, but I think it was Dolores Costello that said to him, look, you go back, you hone your craft and you let Hollywood ask for you. And that's what happened. 
you know, the, that routine basically um, was their ticket into Hollywood. And, um, you know, thank God, now, do you, you know, did but they, uh, that routine is look, it's 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 endlessly funny. It just doesn't matter how many times mm-hmm. you see it. It's it's always funny. It always mm-hmm. there's always at least one part. And, and, and as you mentioned, they kept adding to it and, and adding to it and, and changing mm-hmm. various things and all that. Um, did they ever get tired of that skit? Did they ever get tired of doing that skit? I don't think they got tired of doing that skit because they knew you know, that that skit was, was, was their signature skit. Uh, what they did do is they, they always, they never did the routine the same way twice. Mm. And their reasoning behind that was that they wanted to keep the routine fresh. They didn't want it to get stagnant. Um, they were not ones for rehearsing. Um, they liked to do a lot of the, the improv. So occasionally dad would interject a word or a, a short phrase and the 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 fun the skit usually would last maybe oh my gosh maybe eight minutes seven to eight minutes and I think it was in Vegas where it ran way over because Dad um, pulled a zinger on stage and he threw something in and Bud totally got so lost he was trying to find out how to get him back into where he left. And the family was sitting ringside. I was not there. I was too young. But I remember my aunt laughing and saying, we knew what was happening because we could see the look of, of pure um, exasperation on Bud's face and the beads of sweat on his brow. <laughs> and, but the audience had no idea. The audience was hysterical laughing. Um, and it, it ran something like 20 minutes. Um, but no one knew. No one knew except the family that something had gone awry. But that's what what dad would do. He would start incorporating things um, to freshen it up. Great example. Buck Privates, they do um, the drill routine. And right in the middle of this routine, you'll hear dad look at Bud and say, what time is it? You know, and Bud will come back without missing a beat saying, forget what time it is. You know, get back in the, you know. (laughs) Uh, So they were always doing that. Um, Charlie Barton, who I consider one of the, one of the best of the Abbott and Costello directors, because he would let the cameras run on him. Yes. He said, I had to learn their rhythm, their method of performing. And he said, I realized that both these men had photographic memories. They didn't want to memorize a script that they just didn't want to. They wanted to be able to go out and do sort of a free form, but yet they knew the dialogue. They knew, um, whether they started the dialogue or, or, or ended it, but in between they did something different, but that was their way of keeping the material fresh. Yeah. Well, it's, it's one of actually there, there's a whole section in, in, in the book where you obviously, where you talk about that very thing. I mean, they were, I, I love the idea that, so your dad did not, he didn't want people cutting it ever in the middle of a scene, right? I mean, no matter, no matter what, it's right. like, he'll just do it again because he didn't, he, 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 I mean, they were they were the they were sort of the ultimate stage performers, right? Who, but they were performing right. in movies, and the movie and and their movies were such big hits. The movies captured what they were able to do on stage, right? Well, that's true. Edward Sutherland, I think another director, and I'm not, I cannot recall which film this was in, but I remember he would give a pep talk to the crew, you know, as they were getting ready to shoot a scene with Dad and Bud, and and cautioning them, I don't want to hear. One snicker, one chuckle. I don't want any disruptive laughter on this set. (laughs) 
and they would start doing this. He said we'd start rolling camera, and I'd be sitting in my chair, and Budden would start into one of their routines in a scene. He said, now I've got the handkerchief out of my pocket, and I'm stifling, you know, a laugh because I want so hard to laugh. And he said, all of a sudden, I burst out laughing, you know, and have to yell cut. Um, but the crew would just absolutely fall apart in the earlier, you know, days of their, their filming and stuff, they just couldn't stop laughing. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, that's why a good Abbott and Costello director just let them have the free reign when the cameras were on. But Charlie Barton initiated three cameras, one on Bud, one on dad, but also to catch the reaction. Yeah. You know, the facial reaction. Um, and Charlie, he would chuckle. He was so damn adorable. I just loved this man. He looked like a little Mr. Magoo. I just loved this man. And he would chuckle and he'd say, oh, my God. He said they were so impossible in the beginning. But he said, I realized they were impossible for me to direct because I wasn't understanding how they work best. And he said, but once we got into the rhythm, oh, he said it was it was wonderful just wonderful so great so so great yeah tell me a little bit about uh as as we uh, as we come to a close here um the book getting you know is back in it's it's back sort of in print i mean it's obviously it's uh, it's mm-hmm. uh, it's mm-hmm. on e, mm-hmm. ebooks and, and kindles and all that what has it been mm-hmm. like for you sort of you know you're, you're this is it's been a long time since you've written this book getting back in i'm sure mm-hmm. rereading the book and and doing things again what has that been like for you well, I haven't revisited my book too much okay. um, because, you know, of my own workload and stuff like that. Sure. But I've got to tell you, we're on Facebook and we are always at 5,000 and we've got like 300 and some, you know, waiting to get in. Sure. And with Facebook, what I find so energizing are the fans and the real film bus. And I mean, I'm always learning something from them. Um, but, you know, they'll always say thank you for keeping the memory of Abbott and Costello alive. And I have to stop and say, wait a minute, it's not me that's keeping them alive. It's you people. Yeah. You people are the true stars because without you, the legacy dies. So, you know, I always say stand up. You're getting a standing O from me. Pat yourself on the back. Uh, and it's us, you know, Abbott and Costello, that say thank you to you. Because Dad loved his fans. It, you know, he would say, it's because of my fans that I am where I am. He never turned a fan away from an autograph. Never, ever, ever pushed a fan away. He was, I mean, he would pull up a chair and have them sit down at the dinner table. So, you know, I think that's what, you know, I want his fans to know is that he really loved his fans. Um, he just knew it was because of them. He had what he had. And, um, uh, you know, and we have a lot of fun on Facebook. We really do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, get on that waiting list then to get on that Facebook waiting list. Cause it sounds like a a lot of fun. So Chris, thank you so much. You know, if if anybody, if anybody seriously wants it, but Abbott and Costello, who's on first product, uh, which we put out, it's all licensed. Um, you know, we have a product website, Abbott sure. and Andy Costello collectibles.com. Uh, they can find, you know, the framing script, uh, the posters, oh, wow. we have apparel, everything. So baseball caps, the uh, Abbott and Costello baseball. Um, so, 
you know, take a look when you can. And you've been wonderful to talk with. Absolutely oh, oh, wonderful. This has been wonderful. This has been great. And I would uh, recommend, again, go to the to the site. I'm going to go because I, I, I love the I love Adam and Costello. I love the skit so much. Thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. <laughs>